the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples. Those are the Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations, commonly known as Victoria, B.C., Canada. Toy Smith is my guest today, and I don't know, forgive me, I don't know why it took me so long to invite her. She's been a friend and a colleague I've deeply admired for so long, and in so many contexts. I know Toy as a business and growth strategist, also as a writer and a teacher. I'm also a new member of her online community called Business for the People, for entrepreneurs, creatives, healers, and guides trying to do business differently. Toy also works with mothers who desire to return to themselves and black women who want more joy and pleasure. She really lives the phrase, don't talk about it, be about it. I just delight in everything Toy does. I delight in her mind and her integrity, her social media presence, her voice. And I've wanted to have a conversation with her about capitalism for a long time. I hope you enjoy it even a fraction as much as I did. So, Toy, what identities do you lead with? That's a great question. Um, I would say first and foremost, probably mother is probably the heaviest identity. And it's heaviest in a bad way, but like the strongest one for me, um, being a mother of four. So um, mother, woman, um, black woman. And um, I struggle with entrepreneur because... For me, it feels like loaded. Um, so I would say I'm a creative at heart um, and um, someone who is curious. And so that curiosity fuel, fuels my creativity. Mm-hmm. And I turn that creativity into things that make me money. Um, so that would be um, how, I, how, how I identify. Um, yeah. Hmm. That's a fantastic explanation about entrepreneurship and, and being in business, self, self-employed, because I, I'm i sort of the opposite, where entrepreneurs come to me easily, because that's the nicest way to say I'm unemployable and have just had to make my way in the world. Um, but I've never felt that comfortable saying that I'm creative. Um, but this idea of like, yeah, this is how I'm creative it, and it happens to make me money. I could, I could see kind of sidling up to that. Thank you mm-hmm. for that. Mm-hmm. So really wanted to have this conversation with you about capitalism, specifically anti-capitalism in business, but I wanted to include everyone as well. Not, you don't have yeah. to be self-employed to be thinking about this. Like what are the alternatives? <laughs> how would we mm-hmm. break that down? And, and while we're, in the midst of it, you know, um, how do we live in this world while we're trying to vision and create a new one? So let's mm-hmm. ground ourselves. I'd like to know how you define anti-capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have to start by saying when a lot of people hear the, the phrase anti-capitalist or anti-capitalism, um, they, they initially think like, well, that means I can't make money and I'm going to be poor. And that I have to not have anything or not want anything or have no desires for anything like that. And so I just have to off top say that that is not the case. Like for me, 
anti-capitalism means that I believe, um, I don't believe in exploitation, right? So anti-capitalism, um, capitalism is about relationships of exploitation. It's about layers of exploitation. Um, so when I explain that to people and I say, you're anti-capitalist if you don't believe in exploitation, your own exploitation and other people's exploitation. Um, that's then people are like, oh, okay. Then they become curious. Then it opens them up a little bit. Um, so that would be my definition um, that I feel like is easy enough to grasp and understand that we know at certain parts we can feel in our bodies where we're, when we're being exploited. And um, so if you can tap into that, then you're an anti-capitalist, like at heart. And then it goes into deeper, right, of understanding the relationships of exploitation that happen inside of capitalism. It's very nuanced. Like I'm someone who in my free time, in my journey, I'm learning about capitalism. It takes a lot of time to unravel all of this. And, um, but if you start there, you're like golden. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love how simple your explanation is, of course, because, you know, when I, when I think about the questions I want to ask people, I, you know, I think about them a lot and I'm thinking about like, could I answer that question? Mm -hmm. <laughs> how, how would I answer that question? And how, yeah. and how might they, and I love the elegance of saying, I just don't believe in exploitation. And mm -hmm. so that doesn't necessarily mean that I can't make money. I, and it doesn't mean I don't want other people to make money. Um, it's nuanced for me in terms of who, who I want to have make money yeah. <laughs> and, and what sort of circumstances and how much consent is there. Um, but I love how elegant that explanation is. So yeah, for all the folks that are already are like, well, I, you know, I'm going to feel crappy or I'm going to feel uncomfortable with this conversation because I'm going to be shamed for mm -hmm. Have security, wanting to give a better life to my kids than I have, et cetera, et cetera. To want to have nice things, to want marble countertops, whatever the hell it is, right? Right. Um, yeah, that that's really nice. Um, thank you for that. So, where where would you locate the roots of anti capitalism in your life? Like, is it? I imagine it's all the things, but what in your upbringing planted the seed or was there some kind of like rough initiation somewhere where you were like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, we're not mm -hmm. doing this anymore. Um, and you said you learn a lot too. So I imagine there's elements of like an intellectual awakening that must have yeah. been spurred on by something. So tell us about your journey to this position. So many layers. Um, I think it starts from my from me working in corporate structures, like working in traditional nine to five jobs and always feeling like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> like always like to the point where it, I would play along and then I would blow shit up because mm -hmm. I get to a point of like, do y'all see what I see? Or do y'all have this feeling that I have? And I didn't have a name for it. I didn't have a language for it. I just know that I would continuously like get a job and be really great at this job, right? I'm a quick learner, all these things, I'm smart and get in and be like, there's a better way to do this. Can we do this? They never want a better way, right? Mm -hmm. They don't want a quicker, um, 
a more embodied nuanced way most corporations because they just want you to be there for your time Mm -hmm. and so i think the last the biggest initiation where it started was i used to work for this company i worked for them um for about five years and i started when they were just like a small company here in denver and i was like the fifth hire and i started in one position and they quickly saw how um, my skills skill set was pretty great um and so you know i started doing more jobs and i started doing um other things and I was working, I got hired in position to run payroll and then CHR. And like, I was working payroll and HR. And I started to get a behind the scenes of what people were getting paid. And I was like, huh, why am I not getting paid the same as this person? Like, this is very, very interesting. Um, And so it started there. And so then I stayed with this company and really started working in all these different departments. Well, they started to downsize and they started laying people off. So in my particular department, they laid a lot of people off and they kept me and one other person and gave me all the duties for most mm-hmm. other people who have been laid off. Mm-hmm. And they saw I could handle it. So they kept giving me more things. So I wrote up this proposal, Carmen. It was so amazing. Like I went through, this is where I started. This is what my new duties are. This is what the uh, pay should be matching what I'm doing now. And I took it to HR and I was like, here's the thing. This is what I need to be making. This is the title I need to be at. And they were like, the HR manager who was a white man was like, well, we have to run it up to the next HR person. And I was like, the next manager. They were based in Canada. Okay, perfect. Do that. Took about two weeks. Didn't hear anything. So then I had to go back. And they were like, oh, we can't, we don't have it in our budget to give you any more money. But we still need you to continue doing the things. Maybe in a year, we can give you more pay. Then from there, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm not doing that. (laughs) (laughs) You can teach someone else to do all these things. Yeah. Like, because you're exploiting me. You're exploiting me. I didn't have the language, but I just knew like, oh, I'm doing more than I was doing before. I'm getting paid the same. And y'all are telling me you can't give me any more money. Mm-hmm. My morale went down mm-hmm. and I just kind of stopped doing all the extra stuff and really caring about the work. And um, then in that point when they had really laid off and we were like a skeleton kind of crew, I had my son, my oldest son, broke his arm in a bike accident and knocked out his two front teeth and uh, that were permanent. And so I was on FMLA. I had to be gone. Family Medical Leave Act in, in, the, in the States is basically you can take time off. And I was on my time off and they called me at home. And they're like, hey, hey, Toy, can you come into the office? I was like, maybe four days out. And I was like, no, like, what is this about? I said, are you going to lay me off? on my medical leave off, like, and you're calling me, I'm not coming to the office for you to lay me off. And they're like, yeah, actually, we're going to lay you off. Whoa. That was a moment when I was like, I'm not messing with y'all anymore. Right. Um, so there was that moment. There's another moment, like, and then I got laid off. So that was my second time. That was my first time getting laid off there. Then I went to another company 
got laid off at that company. And then after that, I had an experience where I had made it through like four rounds of interviews. I was like the top candidate for this position. I met with the HR director. I met with the VP and all the things. And I got a call and they said, we would love to hire you, but we, we feel like you wouldn't want to stay in the position long enough. We're looking for someone who just wants to basically stay in the position and push papers. You mm-hmm. seem like you would want to do more. Mm-hmm. And it all started, started to sound like a lot of these places, a lot of the companies, a lot of the ways that we're expected to make money don't allow for us to be our full selves and don't allow for us to really enjoy what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Right. So that that was probably where it started. But then also my motherhood has really um, lended me to an anti-capitalist lens and to really dig inside capitalism um, mm-hmm. because I'm a single mother and the balance, the the unbalance of not having another partner here to help with that really made me look at how society society is structured for mothers and um, single mothers, and that put, pushes you to capitalism mm-hmm. to look at. Mm-hmm. at least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know just a tiny little bit about your uh, earlier days as a younger person that your grandparents were preppers. They had, you know, a year's worth of food in the pantry, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Very yeah. useful foundation for the single mom of four boys, you know, to just like have that mindset. Did you have the stirrings of like a politicized upbringing or um, is this kind of all new? Like, do you feel pretty Mm self-taught? I think about that. My mom is not heavily political in a sense of like uses political language, um, kind of how we think about it, like intellectually, like she doesn't go that way but I would say like my mom is political in the like choices she makes for herself and like her family that she has always um been clear uh like what is necessary what needs to be done um my grandparents I think of course were political now did they talk about it no but I always heard them um have conversations about the things that they needed to do and um, how they had to show up in the world. Were they the kind of people that were giving us lessons about Malcolm X and things like that? Nope, not even a little bit, but in their embodiment and who they were, right? And then in their lineage and how they grew up, right? My grandparents, both born and raised in New Orleans, my grandmother was one of 13, um, you know, in born in like 1938, you know, like Mm -hmm. if I just look at the context of their origin stories and how they were raised and what the little bit I know about what they shared, they were political. They Mm -hmm. had to be political. Every choice a black person made during that time and even now was hella political. And so Mm -hmm. even for them to decide to move their family from New Orleans Right. So I'm first generation born in Colorado. They made the choice to move from New Orleans to come to Colorado, one, for a better life for their family, and two, because my grandfather uh, was hurt in war and needed 
um, um, medical attention, and it was here at the mm-hmm. hospital. Mm-hmm. So those are political decisions because you can't find it where you're at. Mm-hmm. And so then it forces people to migrate mm-hmm. because in their neighborhood, in their community, it wasn't the best. So they had to make a decision to move. So I would say while it wasn't like a political education of being discussed, I feel like it lives in my blood because it was embodied. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel that. Yeah. I feel that I, as a you know white person uh, whose family was not poor, but um, poor working class, you know, mm-hmm. the working poor. Um, yeah. And uh, early years raised by like my grandmother who had to, you know, basically moved back home to her mother's with four young girls as a single parent in like the 1950s. Um, Very unusual, pretty political act to get a divorce at the time and opened up a beauty salon in the, in the garage, you know, converted it because what, so what, I think of it as like, no, I didn't have a politicized upbringing, except that every single decision that was made was a forced hand by capitalism. So it's like the absence of political discourse because the living, the, the survival um, that, that takes up so much energy and time, it's so mm-hmm. central. It's such a central feature of like having the garden outside you know, having a business where your mom can take care of your kids so you can work and the people come to yep. you and you, you know, like that's, you choose your career based on that. You choose where you're going to live based on that. You choose your housing, like all of that. So yeah, nobody ever talked about like, it's like, makes me laugh to think about like my grandma or my mom talking about like feminism or something <laughs> like, it's just like, not right. that's not going to happen. Um, but, but we might talk about how hard it was, uh, abortions weren't legal, like just, you know, all that kind of stuff, how difficult it was, uh, befriending other somewhat marginalized people, other single mothers, um, lesbians, gasp, grab your pearls, you know, that kind of stuff, like, just like the the way you're, you know, we can kind of smell our own, who's out here struggling on the fringe, but nobody's talking about, hey, let's, let's all get free, which makes me so happy for, um, the generations like myself and my my son and I think about your kids it's like it takes Mm -hmm. a while but it's trickled down through and it's starting to be articulated right so who are some of the um the thought leaders that have Mm -hmm. shaped your understanding and your philosophy towards capitalism I was thinking about this question when you when I saw it because I read so much about capitalism right like Every book, I'm like, let me just see if I enjoy it. What can I pull from this? So, but I would say, of course, Marx, but a big one would be Sylvia Federici. Like I've read every single book Mm -hmm. that Sylvia has written. Um, and And because she's so good at connecting reproductive labor and capitalism, and motherhood mm-hmm. and all of these things. Mm-hmm. That's what politicized me so much when I was able to see that connections because I couldn't name it being a single mom, like what felt so hard. I just know I was fucking pissed <laughs> and I was like tired and like everyone kept being like, well, at least this, at least that. I'm like, no, 
not at least anything. This does not feel accurate. And so when I was able to connect with Sylvia's work, which I wait for with bated breath whenever she does, <laughs> like a new book or any um, you know, workshop she's at, or like, just try to like relish in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I'm talking about capitalism and thinking about it, I'm also thinking about like the work we're not talking about, like the work we're not seeing as part of capitalism. Um, so, and I would also say uh, Cedric Rob- Robinson, who talks about black Marxism, um, because I feel like a lot of people, when they think about Marx, if you study capitalism, what Marx left out was, you know, looking at ha- not having a good eye about slavery or understanding mm-hmm. how that supported and created what capitalism could be. Um, and then the continued uh, slavery that happens in the U.S. even today, um, disability justice, like he didn't look at any of that stuff, ableism, mm-hmm. uh, reproductive labor, and that's what Sylvia Federici yeah. is able to pull me into. So I would say intellectually, those are the main people, but I read everything mm-hmm. about capitalism. I've, for years now, like it's a hobby just to be like, oh, Oh, there is a, um, there's a podcast that I forget the name of it. I'll have to, I'll have to get the name of it, but it goes through a long lineage of the start of capitalism. It's like eight minute episodes. It's like 50 little episodes. And so I spent a long time like listening to that as well. Um, And then what I do with that information is then be like, oh, this is how I identify it in my world. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see this with my friends. Okay, so this is where it's already embodied and where we're already pushing against it, um, whatever I'm reading, because I don't want to just intellectualize it. I want to m- understand how it shows up in the daily world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I want to throw in the Combahee River Collective here yes. and even the, the more recent um, kind of... Uh, anthology would you call it a, a tribute almost publication called how we get free by um kianga yamada taylor um because yeah recognizing is it's like kind of funny to say it as a white person but like recognizing that it's like oh black feminist socialism is yeah. like is articulating my my politics like this, this is like okay. That's like that is what I'm identifying with. I'm really resonating um, with that. That was like a a weird and wonderful experience as you know a forty year old <laughs> coming <laughs> across this and being like, how did I not know? And it's like, oh, yeah. there's like so many layers of, um, and you know they 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 really do address like, hey, white ladies, like over here, um, and you know it was like sad to me that it took me until I was like 40 to have heard about it and read that. But now um, it's like, yeah, I, I want to like print that out and have it, give it away as pamphlets mm-hmm. in little free library outside my house. That is actually a thing we're doing this year. Just oh, so yes. everybody knows. Yeah. <laughs> Just like giving away <laughs> pamphlets. Um, so thank you for all those. Okay. So let's yeah. go back to the money part. How do you understand the relationship between money and capitalism? Like, what's the difference between those two things? So 
I think I shared this, you know, when people hear anti-capitalism, they're like, oh, that means I can't make money. So I can't be anti-capitalist because I care about money. And it's not that we care about money because money is actually a construct. We care about being well. Mm -hmm. We care about being able to take care of ourselves. We care about being able to take care of our beloveds. We care about being able to be warm and sheltered and all of these things, right? So it's not the love of money. It's the love of wanting to be well. Um, so when I think about money and I think about capitalism, to me, they're two separate things because if capitalism is about exploitation, right? Money is a tool that capitalism uses to create dependence so that people understand, like, so that you know you don't have land. So they dispossess people. It creates this level of dependence. You have to depend on your labor only to be well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I think money is a tool. Um, and so it's hard for me when people are like, you know, capitalism or money or like, what, what is the connection? To me, it's really separate because you have to understand the exploitation that is happening inside of capitalism first and the level of dependence that has to happen, right? So I have to depend on my labor to then not be poor or live in poverty and in order to make the money. So money inside of capitalism is weaponized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you kind of, maybe this is like a somatic question about it? Yeah. (laughs) It's just, it's like such a personal question in a way. Yeah. Um, How do you discern? Yeah how much money Mm -hmm. is so much that there is probably exploitation involved that is like beyond the realm of acceptable. So Mm -hmm. in other words, how much is too much? Like I, this is a big question that I have is like, at what point does the amount of wealth that somebody that I, that one of my beloveds is acquiring is actually Mm -hmm. becoming problematic for me? Because mm-hmm. it's like, how is this happening? How is it like? I I don't know, and I don't want to be a scrutineer. I don't yeah. want to, but it, but I, and I question it not just for others, certainly for myself. This this goes right mm-hmm. down to pricing in entrepreneurship yeah. and like how much do we want to make and that sort of thing. So, anything, any, what are your thoughts on how we discern when where the exploitation line is? Yeah. So. We're talking about enough, right? Like, mm-hmm. how do you know when enough is when we've been socialized and conditioned to believe that everything is infinite, mm-hmm. right? We have infinite resources. You can grow, grow, grow. Like, you can exploit people <clears throat> to make the money. Like, there is never enough, right? So, like, first, I think you have to unpack and really sit with the conditioning that you've had personally, right? Mm -hmm. Like what is true? What feels like yours? What isn't yours? And like, how have you been tricked or put under, been put under a spell to believe you have to live a certain kind of way? Because part of the indoctrination of capitalism is through marketing, consumption, and advertisement, right? Mm -hmm. So our wants become our needs. So we think that our wants are our needs. 
And so we're like, I need that. I need that. I need that. When it's a want that we've been socialized to think of as a need that we've been marketed to because marketing is an engine of capitalism. Mm-hmm. So I think <clears throat> there's not really a beautiful formula or answer that I can give. I can say that people have to really sit with, is it a want or is it a need? And understanding that there is a difference and we've been socialized to conflate the two. And that, of course, based on your um, identities and your location and your class status and your privileges and all those things, enough is going to look different for everyone else. It's a real unpacking that has to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I totally agree. That, that, that is like the, the fundamental question is, do you know what enough feels like? Do you know how to be sated? Are you able to rest in a state of well-being? And that mm-hmm. isn't just with money. That's with another person in your attachment. That's with, oh, the dessert that I'm eating. That's with, um, oh, this like time off, this vacation I had or whatever it is. It's like, can you, can you linger in states of well-being and have them actually land within you? Or does getting something actually trigger your desire for more just in case, just for whatever reason. Do do you know what I mean? It's like that. That's why I think I frame that as like a somatic question. It's like, can you feel enoughness and have that be cool? You know? And that is very hard when, you know, we're getting into like complex layers, but at the same time, if I think it really does come down to that is you feel it. Like you said earlier, you didn't have the language for something, but you were like, fuck this bullshit and morale goes down or what have you. It's like, you know, the feeling, but capitalism is trying to uh, interrupt that intelligence within us and try to like cut off our access to knowing what enough feels like even enough rest even enough whatever like we're so conditioned to push through um our distress signals that we don't know what our preferences are we don't know how much enough is we don't know when we're tired until we're broken or until we're burned out or until there are no options etc so that's it that's a great philosophy i think and i think there's so many layers we can have a whole conversation around this because we're really taught to keep up with the Joneses and have upward mobility, mm-hmm. right? It's all about class ascension. You, mm-hmm. if you're working class, if you're this, if you're that, like we're all we're all kind of taught that like this is a state you don't want to be in, and mm-hmm. you can always grow, you can always make more make more money, and so I'm not saying people need to live in a deficit because there are so many people who that's been their existence for so long. Like the most Mm -hmm. um, marginalized of us have been living at a deficit and not have been, and have not been living well. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think, especially for white people, it's important to look at, and I hate the word privilege now because I feel like it's so watered down, but it's Mm -hmm. beyond like privilege. It's like, look at, your lineage and look at your wellness, right? Mm -hmm. What are you able to have access to, to be well, right? Is, Mm -hmm. do you get to go to the doctor? Do you have health insurance? What does your food look like? Are you in a food desert? 
do you have extras? Are you getting massages and acupuncture? And like, do you have a gym membership? Like, do you have clean, fresh air? Do you have all of these things that allow and contribute to your wellness that allow you to then move in the world and then take up more because you are well rested and you're creative and you're living in your genius and in your zone Mm -hmm. where other people don't have access to that. Right. So then you're continuing to go like upward mobility. It's kind of think about downward mobility. How do you then stay the same? And like we say stagnant in a bad way, but I'm like, well, how do you then you maybe don't need to make more money. You can still work. Can that money go to someone else? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that you're getting into the language of this. So Resma Menekum talks about not privilege, but advantage. Yeah. And it's like, what's your advantage? And that is that lands differently, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yes. It's, yes. Like, it's like, oh, that's more accurate. Um, and that idea of stagnancy, to me, that's sustainability. Like within the kind of ecological um, movement, the uh, environmental movement of the past number of decades, whenever they've talked about sustainability, I've sort of scoffed inside. It's like none of this is sustainable. We could put every single thing we have into renewable energy. We will not be able to keep up with the lack of an ability to sense being sated. <laughs> you know, right. like we, we just won't. And so what has been described as sustainability is still not, we, it is not able to be sustained infinitely. Whereas mm-hmm. if you think about like what you're describing, that stagnancy, it's like, yeah, what is the sustainable rate where it's like, I can, I am able to sustain my wellness over a long period of time and anything above that is surplus and that can be mm-hmm. redistributed. And I have no problem with that redistribution, you know? Yeah. Like, um, yeah. So this brings me to my next question, like for real. And yeah. I, and I asked this like with no expectation of what the response would be like, <laughs> do you actually really think it's possible for white people to truly be anti-capitalist just considering how conditioned and ingrained dominance, individualism, all of the different forms of supremacy have been in us for so many centuries. Um, like is like, I don't want to make people feel <laughs> bummed out, but I'm just like, let's w- w- like, if we could just talk, if we can work within the bounds of reality, that, that I think yeah. is helpful. So what do you think realistically? <laughs> I think it's possible, but it takes a long time and it's going to cause a lot of grief. Mm-hmm. Specifically what gonna, kind of grief? You're going to lose a lot of things, right? So if you're saying, Like if we go on my definition and you say, I believe, I don't believe in exploitation of self, of others in my relationships, of land, of earth, any of that, I don't believe in it. Okay. So then that's a great ideology. What is the practice that supports that ideology? Right. So then you're saying you're anti-capitalist. So then I want to know what the practices are. So then we're talking about actual ways of embodiment and living, not just thinking I'm anti-capitalist. So then that feeds into um, if you're a business owner, like are you sharing your money with people that you're working with? How are you paying people? How are you, you know, making less? And if we're talking specifically about like 
white folks, I think it's possible, but damn, it's going to take a long, long time. You have had to been, you have to constantly be in this examination and this uncovering of the ways that you're exploiting others, the ways that your family has taught you to exploit, the way culture has taught you, taught you to exploit. And think of it as not only okay, but preferable. That mm-hmm. if you don't mm-hmm. move in that way, then there's something wrong with you. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and so can white folks be anti-capitalist? I think if you are prepared to really let go of yourself, like shed so much, your life is going to look completely different. Your beliefs are going to be completely different. Probably who you call beloved is going to be completely different because the self that we're kind of taught to be, especially white bodied people, is all about dominant alienation and like taking. Mm -hmm. And I think very few white people have a clear sense of who they are. So that's why when you attack whiteness and we talk about whiteness, so many people are attached to whiteness, so many white people are attached to it, that they feel like you're talking directly to them because it's an attachment to it. And so it's unattaching from the whiteness, it's unattaching from the supremacy, It's unattaching from the exploitation and the domination and the alienation. And it's getting back connected to the land and what's true and all of these things. And so it takes time. So I don't know if I really believe if someone tells me they're anti-capitalist, if they're like, just started their journey. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like it's like, I'm working towards being anti-capitalist. Mm-hmm. Or I have an anti-capitalist ideology that I'm forming, that I'm trying to understand how to work in my life. Because to just label yourself that, when you probably still have these layers of like advantage and these layers of exploitation that you haven't looked at, it's hard for me to like tr- believe it. But even as a Black woman who is I say I'm anti-capitalist. Every day I'm examining it and looking at the ways it, capitalism shows up in my parenthood, in my motherhood, in my intimate relationships, in my relationship with self. So if I'm still going through it all the time, you know, like mm-hmm. I think white white folks really have to be dedicated. And I don't think you can do it by yourself. Mm. Absolutely not. Oh my God. Oh my God. Well, for sure. No, for sure. You can't. And like everything you say, fair enough. The, the part about, um, like whiteness is based on taking, but the thing that is particularly capitalist about whiteness is that it's based on taking framed as growth. Like it's framed as you are pulling yourself up in your bootstraps or you are, you know, like you are, oh, your parents didn't go to college and now you're going to college. Oh, there's like no impact to that. You know, like it's all disappeared. The impact and like displacement that has to happen or the funneling of resource towards you and not towards others that has to happen, the spaces that you occupy that others then can't occupy, et cetera, et cetera. The amount of space you take up in a room 
or in time or what have you, that's a soul invisibilized that, um, you know, and it's interesting you say, you know, we have to go back and connect with the land. That's definitely a site of um, struggle. Yeah. When we think about, you know, here, here we are, I'm in Canada, you're in the U.S., it's all stolen land. There are precedents of returning land back to Indigenous um, right and title. Yeah. However, the, like, well, we could go into a whole thing about how difficult <laughs> the government makes that, right? They, yeah. they don't want to lose that tax base. Um, but I think about, of course, as a, as a collapse aware person, I want my kid to be one of the ones that makes it right. Like, mm-hmm. so it's like, I want to secure futurity for my offspring. That is a natural thing to want. They don't need yes. to have more kids or anything like that, but it's like natural that I want that in our situation. My um, husband's parents were like back to the landers uh, who left the U S and came to Canada. They have land in like a fire zone, a drought zone. Like it's like not where I want to collapse. It's not my bug out place, Yeah. but they had one child, my husband. So I'm benefiting from this proximity to patriarchal white power where land is going to be passed down. And I, I spend so much time. It's like, a ridiculous amount of time running scenarios between should we just give that land back to the nation will my son need it is there a way that we can you know like how can we how can we do this <laughs> so that we can just revert this land back to the the, the nation and somehow have have get a little something for ourselves you know mm-hmm. just so that my son has like a place to land I, I so this idea of like reconnect with the land there's so much grief and, and challenge yep. in that as a as somebody um you know displaced from ancestral territories and when I'm thinking about can a white person actually become anti-capitalist I definitely have taken a lot of inspiration from my Scottish Highlander ancestors that's like four generations ago five generations ago that's where i'm still i'm five generations later and this anti-capitalist thread or drive within us is only just starting to reveal itself it's five generations from the actual like peoples being displaced and like being politicized um five generations the four in between three in between have been we got to get out of this fucking like, you know, yeah. backbreaking labor. We got to get out of this subsistence living. So now it's like, gosh, I'm, I'm playing kind of a long game. I'm still dealing with a lot of their pain, but um, mm-hmm. I hope if there's a generation after my son, which my lineage probably, probably won't be, but mm-hmm. um, whoever are his chosen family, even that um, the influence is carried down. It's probably, could be a could be a while is what I'm saying yeah <laughs> right? right like we're we're when we have these conversations like I think what I always have to go back to is like we're not talking about something that's going to fix it be fixed in the next 10 years mm-hmm. or something that's like when we're saying we're anti-capitalist or we're trying to create a new future and all these things like it's living in the present moment and realizing that these small things do have impact and do have meaning. And like, how can we 
live our values and be in practice and embodied now that it 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 goes into the future as well right so like when i think about white folks and anti-capitalism it's like some hard choices that have to happen and so like when you share the story about your son like do you think your son would be fine like ultimately he didn't have the land right so like mm-hmm. because whiteness is so powerful in how we hold it and how it's been structured in our world he'll probably still be okay right mm-hmm. versus if someone else like my son didn't have access to certain resources would he have the same kind of trajectory as as your son mm-hmm. you know historically and statistically we would say no so then what is a choice that would need to be made now for you and this isn't easy choices right mm-hmm. this is a thing of like sometimes i struggle on social media cuz we talk about these things so binary that like really make this choice like makes it really easy and some of it's really easy where it's like make the decision and do it <laughs> but mm-hmm. also there's a lot of gray and there's a lot of nuance nuance so i i give grace to that but i also wonder like who's going to really do the hard things who are the white folks that are really going to do the hard things? And sometimes I struggle like in my spaces when like white folks want to like learn from me and do certain things. It's almost as if they want to learn so they can still continue to make more and take more and have more <laughs> right. how access. To, but, and how to do it feeling better about themselves. <laughs> and how to do it to feel better. It doesn't come like, okay, great. Now I know I need to um, have downward mobility. Now I know I need to not be a landlord. Now I know I need to not, it almost is like, okay, great. I feel, feel good about what I'm doing. It feels, but I almost feel like white folks have to do more. There's a level of um, uncomfortableness that has to happen. Mm -hmm. White people are way too comfortable. It's like, I always give this scenario of like, the white people who go to like Black Lives Matter um, protests or go to those things and then go back to their suburban nice homes. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, huh, a lot of the people that you're protesting for don't have the comfort that you have. So what's the disconnect? The easy thing that we do now is like, just, you know, say, give a little bit of money at it. But most white folks aren't even giving money that makes them uncomfortable. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or that puts a dent in the levels of wealth or access that they have. So Mm -hmm. because they have a level of scarcity that is built into whiteness, as you said, because they know that they've been taking it Mm -hmm. and it's theft and it has led to their growth and their stability. And so then if they've done that, we're going to do it to them too. So it's like, it's this thought of like, I got to protect my stuff because I know how I got it. Yeah. Oh, toy, it's so <laughs> uncomfortable. I'm like, I let go a long time ago of like wanting to be a landlord, but, um, but the, even just upward mobility in terms of like um, the, the 
feelings, you know, the emotions of like, I don't know, going to university or like I never graduated college or university. And so it's like, oh, I always have this kind of imposter complex or whatever. Less so now, obviously. Um, I shouldn't say obviously. Less so as as an older person. But then like actually not squirreling away a whole bunch of money for my son to go to college, university and kind of just being like, I don't I don't know, that maybe is kind of a racket. And also, like, if I squirrel all that money away, I can't, I can't redistribute it. I can't, then I, then I, then I don't have the money that I want to be able to give to whatever Raven's trust to fight for Aboriginal rights and title in court or whatever, you know, like I can't do my tithing in as generous a way. Like, so it's like, okay, I'm feeling a little better (laughs) about like, okay, right. Feeling uncomfortable and giving enough that it actually makes you a little concerned. Like, you know, like it feels like, yeah, I'm giving something up. It's like, okay. So these are some, some very concrete examples. Thank you. They are uncomfortable and it's useful. What, what are some of the ways that you're unhooking from capitalism in your business as an entrepreneur? Like, and, and I like ideas, right? Like tell us what you're doing. Cause you know, like, like you said, there's like throw money at it. There's, I'm using the word tithing. I don't know what the other, another word might be that's more secular, but just like, here's an automatic amount that goes for my work to go back to, um, you know, pay reparations to indigenous folks or goes to whatever cause. Uh, What else is there that you're doing? So I would say one of the biggest things is I don't believe in hustle or grind culture. So I have a lot of white space in my calendar. Um, Mm. I'm pretty clear on what my numbers are in terms of like how much money I need to make. Um, And so I work when I'm like, I work to keep my basics. Like I have a basic level. I know that's how much I need to make. If Um, there's something else I want and I want to work for, then I work for that and I make that money and that goes to that. Now it's, it's hard because I'm a mother of four and you think about the future of your kids and like, do I need to have money saved for them? Do I need to do that? Like then you're having to work so much more in order to create this savings um, in such an uncertain like world. Mm -hmm. And so I think, the bait and switch that capitalism does is puts us in a space of like, we're always thinking about the future. And so we like work really, we overwork ourselves trying to get into this future space of like how much money we can have and all of these things, instead of really being present and being like, this is the money I need to make right now. So Mm -hmm. I'm clear on my numbers, I would say. That's another thing. Like, I know what my stay alive number is. Like I need to make this amount of money every month that covers my rent, that covers my car, that covers food. That's it. If there's some months, like I don't want to make more than that, then I guess I don't make more than that. Um, But it leaves space to, to be creative. And so then I have another number. If I want to like, you know, save more money, Mm -hmm. then I'll, I'll work a little bit more. I would also say I deeply believe in like sliding scales and offering people different levels and ways to work with me. Um, That feels really important because it takes away like the scarcity from myself to be like, ooh, I need to make this amount or I need to make that amount. 
um, or things like that. So it allows me to sit more in whatever someone else, how they're able to show up and pay. Mm-hmm. So that's why I enjoy um, sliding scale. And I would say those are probably the, the biggest ways. I think it's really important to not treat yourself like an employee when you're working for yourself, right? So like, so because we've been so indoctrinated in that, we usually start to work for ourselves. And we're like, even if we're exhausted, even if we've had a shitty day, even if our body is like, no, even if there's like, well, your family needs you or things like that, we're like, I got to work. I got to work. I got to check those emails. I got to like, I've just tried to really not treat myself like an employee and allow myself to have more humanity in my work. And that means like, and you do this too. Like, you're not going to get an email response from me maybe right away, right? <laughs> this <laughs> expectation, this urgency that we've created, especially in the business world. And then it's deemed unprofessional mm-hmm. if you don't have a sense of urgency, a, a sense of like on it, on itness. Um, I push against all of it. Mm-hmm. Totally. You know, another one that I do when you said, you know, your numbers, um, I have a very clear sense of what something is worth to me. So mm-hmm. people always say to me, especially my husband, it's so funny because he's like such a socialist when it comes to um, like what he wants to spend on things and then feels kind of like a capitalist with what he wants to like save and like (laughs) hoard you know it's so funny but he's always like you could be charging so much more you know you Mm. work so hard you could be charging so much more and I'm like you know what it is so priceless to me to not have to um do like admin, for instance. So like I used to charge for all of my products separately and have workshops that would have different, you know, and like, yes, you have a launch, you make a bunch of money, you execute, but there's so many emails and so much like, I need you to answer this question that's already in your FAQ, but now I'm in your DMs on Instagram (laughs) and like, oh, I I can't remember how to get into the program. So instead I'm like, I have this one network. It's like, you're, I'm going to put everything in it. So if you were to actually add up everything you're getting for it, like it's, it's dirt cheap. You're getting it like a penny on the dollar for what I have made. Right. But not having to answer those fucking emails is so priceless to me. Yeah. And I'm like, look, I'm going to make this so accessible. Do not email me. and like do not (laughs) just do not and like it is gonna be that makes me so joyful because it it just opens up my time when I when I hear people be like oh yeah I get on my email in the morning and like hopefully I get around to writing or tasking by noon I literally my gag reflex goes it's like I I already feel like I'm languishing in despair. Just my mirror neurons are responding to what you're telling me. I can't do it. So knowing, like having a really clear sense of like, no, this is like worth so much to me. It's the same with like social media. I could do my own scheduling of social media, but I hate that kind of administration. So finding a wonderful person who like, this is their jam and they like researching hashtags. It's like, oh my God, yes, here's my money. 
I will pay a retainer, do that thing that is so valuable to me. And so it's very much a personal sense of like what I'm willing to work for, what I'm not willing to work for. I'm not willing to hustle for money in my account, but I'm totally willing to like spend a bunch of time creating like a whole system that will enable me to not look at emails. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm just like, so, so happy to do that. And that's going to be a fabulous exchange. And I know what I need to live and anything beyond that is gravy. That's great. But the most important thing is that, like you said, it's giving me white space in my calendar and I don't have to do that. Some people love customer service and they're awesome at it. I'm a nice person who becomes like a gremlin with customer service. (laughs) And I have to do so much self-regulation and somatics to like not, I do that thing where I get on email and it's like, bang, 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 bang. And then I have to go back and be like, hi, thank you for your note. Like I have to like (laughs) go back and like take out and soften and actually put in a greeting and a, and a, you know, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, oh gosh, this is so great. I've wanted to have this conversation with you for a long time, Toy. I, I learned so much from you. I've, I've loved your um, products and programs you've put out about uh, anti-capitalist business. I'm curious how you're going to answer this question. So the, the last yeah. question on the podcast is always, how do you cope with grief and rage? I'll start by saying I feel like I have a lot of both um, <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel like I have a lot of rage. I had someone on an Instagram post the other day say like, I feel like you complain a lot. I'm unfollowing you. And I was like, that's interesting because I think you have to have a level of privilege and advantage to see truth telling as complaining. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I always joke like I'm super fun at parties because I always want to talk about (laughs) how fucked up things are. So am I a glass half full person or half empty? Gotta catch me on the day. I don't Mm -hmm. know. Um, I know that so many people are suffering. So it is very hard for me to live in a space of joy all the time. Um, I can drive to Starbucks right now and there are so many unhoused people Mm. that are just around my neighborhood and around my community that weren't there five years ago. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I have my eyes open to see that we're not well Mm -hmm. and we should be angry and we should have righteous anger and we should be rageful because when we are very complacent and we think that everything's okay, nothing changes. Things don't change because people were joyful and happy. Mm-hmm. They change because we weren't, we haven't been treated well. And our anger and our rage have led us to enact and work on that change. So how do I handle it? I think I funnel it in my writing. I think I funnel it in my curiosity around, A, how we got here, right? Like learning about the history of everything and And then thinking about and sitting in curiosity and conversations with people around what's possible and what's actually happening now, right? Like, yes, there's so much despair and grief that I'm talking about and rage, but also there's still beautiful work that is going on now. 
and people are, are going against the structures now and living in beautiful ways. And it's like, how are they doing that? And how do I pull that a little bit each day? And um, I have a lot of grief as well, a lot of grief around motherhood and how mothers are treated and how we're held and the children are held and things like that. And again, I put pen to paper and I share that grief. I get it out of my body so that maybe some other people connect with it. And I think that's been the glory over the last few years of me being able to just not feel ashamed of my situation as capitalism would like, because it doesn't, it's not uh, tied up with the bow, but being really truthful around how, what my motherhood looks like, what my values are, and then hopefully that giving some release to other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It for sure does. Let me just like reflect that back right away. It sure Thank does. You. And whoever said this is complaining, I'm like, oh my God, this is like elixir. It's nectar for me to be on your socials and, and Thank you. whatever it is that you're expressing always gives me a sense of inner coherence, which is very settling. So mm-hmm. um, thank you. Thank you, Toy. You're such a gift. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Toy has so much to offer entrepreneurs and mothers about liberation. I really recommend you start by following her on social platforms to get a sense of her perspective and check out her offerings at toymarie.com. There's excellent articles and some videos. Toy is just a brilliant synthesizer of knowledge. Um, So I'm going to add links to some of the resources she mentioned in this episode in the show notes. Um, Also check out her website, businessforthepeople.com, and get on the wait list for the next time applications open to join that wonderful community. You can find the show notes at numinouspodcast.com. I'll share that there are a number of things I do to try to run my business in an anti-capitalist, non-exploitative way. Um, I guess starting with the basic acknowledgement of stolen land that I live and work on. So Raven Trust is the place where I give a percentage of my income every month if you're interested in helping to support uh, legal challenges to fight for Aboriginal rights and title in British Columbia. They always have several cases going on um, supporting different nations uh, in this province. I sort of see these payments like voluntary taxes. Um, if I'm teaching and I reference my friend and elder Norman Rataskett of the Schwetmach Nation, I'll make additional payments to Raven in his name as well. And then reciprocityconnects.ca is where I've pledged to make payments to the local nations whose territories I live upon. Reciprocity Connects is the action step that comes after a territorial acknowledgement. Again, you could you could see it as taxes or even better. I think of it as, um, you know, like if you wanted to travel to a foreign country, you would need to pay for a passport. And um, if you wanted to stay there for any length of time, you'd have to pay extra for a visa, right? Like it costs money to travel. And this is kind of like that. Like here, I am in another nation. Like they have a whole different language. They have a whole different. I'm in another nation where I live. So it only makes sense that they should be able to um, 
kind of keep track of me and, and charge me a nominal payment for use and like administration of me being here. Like, I mean, if I wanted to go camping in a national park, I would have to pay a campground fee, right? So like, this is not a, a novel concept and Reciprocity Connects is uh, new, but I highly recommend it. Like I said, you can um, find links to these things in the show notes on numinouspodcast.com. And then, you know, there are a lot of smaller more interpersonal ways that I make my work um, accessible and more equitable while still having enough for myself. Um, but but the one that I'm most proud of and that I want to talk about is the Numinous Network. So that's where I bundled all of my group offerings into one monthly payment with a sliding scale. So in the past, if you wanted to take all these programs, that would have added up to about $3,000. Um, but instead, now they're all available to you for $45 to $75 a month. So in other words, it would take you like 77 months or over six years of membership before you'd be overcharged. I've, I've tried to price it so that if you just access this network once or maybe twice a month, you're already getting a level of value and care that's like unprecedented, certainly amongst these types of subscription programs. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, anyway, here, I'm going to read a comment that a really lovely human named Eleni left um, on one of my posts uh, on Instagram about the network. Eleni says, the quality and quantity of what's being offered in this space is priceless. Having already engaged and benefited tremendously from your past work and offerings, I thought I knew what I'd be getting, but my expectations have been far surpassed. So, I mean, you know, there are other people saying other things, but I feel like she really got to the heart of what I'm going for. That really thrills me. So, and there's no minimum time commitment. You could join for like a month and binge all my courses if you want. I don't care if you've got, you've got a month where you're like, I'm going to watch everything Cartman's done on attachment or all of her, you know, numinous school archive videos. That's fine. All I ask actually is that, and so here's where the exploitation piece comes in, right? And the enoughness. So all I ask is that you make sure you abide by the basic agreement to join the network, which is that you use your real name and post a selfie. Like that's like what makes me feel like we're in um, a real relationship. It makes me feel more human. I want people to treat me like a real person with real feelings. And if I just see a blank avatar picture, it actually feels icky for me. Like it feels as though I'm just a product that you've purchased that like there, you think there's like not another person. That, that's not true. I'm a person who also doesn't want to be exploited, right? And I think I think a picture of yourself and your real name is a fair trade. That's that's like the deal. <laughs> so come hang out with me and be non-exploitative with me. And I promise I will men mention in like nearly every class how capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist patriarchy underlies most of our problems. <laughs> like whether it's like attachment for parents, group somatics class, wheat weaving workshop, ooh, or this October 31st, it's the Witch's Ladder Making Workshop. So ritual, spellcraft, you know it. I'm going to find a way to mention how capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist patriarchy is keeping us from connecting with ourselves and with each other, and I'm going to give us some tools to unhook from that. Okay, so let's move to the listener shout-out. Okay, for folks following along on Instagram, you know that occasionally I post about who is not listening to the Numinous podcast, specifically in America. So like every once in a while, I drill down on the map in my pod, pod uh, my download stats for my podcast. And it actually really cracks me up just to see like who is having none of this podcast. So, so 
Just so everyone knows, North Dakota continues to hold it down as the least hospitable place in America for Carmen Spaniola. Like, am, honestly, am I banned there? Am I shadow banned in North Dakota? How can, how can not one download in the entire country, every other state? I, and I don't know how many weeks it's been, maybe months. I, I don't know. Maybe it's been years since there was a single download from North Dakota. But basically everyone in that state is like, miss me with that shit. So I just want to say like, um, like, okay, I'm not for everyone. I mean, I, I find it strange that out of the 780,523 people um, in that state, like, I'm not for anybody. I, I mean, okay. I can receive your no, North Dakota. I receive your no. Bless and release. But the big news is Ohio. Two weeks ago, there was one lone fan in the stands in Ohio. But now, 280 individuals this week are into the Numinous podcast in Ohio. So yeah, Ohio. I stand Ohio. I've never been there, but I feel invited. I feel you and your hospitality, Ohio, and I thank you, I see you, and I like you. If you'd like to stay connected, you can follow me on Instagram at Carmen Spaniola, or go to my website to learn more about the Numinous Network, where I'm cross-pollinating all my work in the areas of attachment, polyvagal theory, somatics, mysticism, and more. You get all my courses and about 15 to 20 live calls a month you can just drop into all my workshops just sign up for a month and give it a try. You'll find all the details at CarmenSpaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.